Welcome back, I'm Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. In Hebrew, the word hevel means vapor or mist, something that seems attainable but can never satisfy, like smoke slipping through your fingers. This podcast aims to shift our focus from worldly things toward Jesus, our Savior. Every book of the Bible points toward God's ultimate plan of redemption for humanity through Jesus Christ on the cross. One of the goals of this jaunt through the minor prophets that we've been doing is to help make these 12 books more readable by providing some context, applying some messages, and highlighting how it points toward Jesus. We are currently on the book of Nahum. Last episode was the overview episode, the part A, if you will. If you haven't already, I highly recommend listening to that episode before listening to this one. Today, in the Part B episode, we'll geek out a bit and we'll explore a few of the verses, words, and topics of the books a little deeper. Today, I want to talk about what exactly a biblical oracle and vision are. The two questions concerning Nineveh that end both the books about Nineveh. I want to talk about Nineveh's wicked U-turn from God. Jesus as the one who can calm the storms and the sea and about how, as Christians today, we should be broken for the lost among us as we read through the book of Nahum. An oracle about Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, Nahum 1.1. So in the overview episode, we highlighted the who, what, when, and where aspects of this first verse. Today, let's look at the other aspects. What is the Bible saying when it references oracles and visions in this book and other prophetic literature? The words we're looking at are oracle or vision. In Hebrew, they are masah and hosan, which can mean burden, prophecy, oracle, utterance, or vision. Depending on the version you read, your translation might say oracle, or burden, or message, or prophecy, or pronouncement for the first word, and for the second word, pretty much all translations universally use the word vision. It is not a reference to some magical trick or illusion, like you might find in some ancient Roman or Greek mythology. The biblical authors weren't like the oracles of Delphi at the Temple of Apollo where sacrifices were made and priestesses bathed naked and hallucinogenic agents were used to give people a divine experience. And they weren't like some medieval sorcerer reading from a crystal ball. Oracles and visions here in the Bible are simply referring to messages from God delivered by prophets through the working of the Holy Spirit. Theodore of Mopsustia proclaimed that in his wish to give the prophets an insight often productive of rapture, God caused a sudden transformation of their mind so that while in this condition they might receive the knowledge of the future with deeper fear. It's important to note that while today God can absolutely provide believers indwelled with the Holy Spirit a prophetic word to share with his people, Prophetic revelation from a new scripture perspective has ceased. Scripture is closed, and so any prophetic words given today should always and fully be measured against scripture itself.
Shouldn't I be concerned for Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who can't discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much livestock? Jonah 4.11 There is no healing your wound, for your injury is fatal. All who hear the report of you clap their hands over you, for who hasn't felt your endless cruelty? Nahum 3.19 So I noticed during my Jonah episode that there are only two Old Testament books I can think of that end in a question, and that they both just happen to deal with the same city of Nineveh. The books of Jonah and Nahum both end in a question, and both revolve around God's dealing with the Assyrian people living in the city of Nineveh. I'm still not sure that there's an actual connection there, but there are some things that are interesting to note about the two. In Jonah, the question, directed at the Israelite prophet Jonah, is pointing out why God should be concerned for a people who are lost and unrepentant. It's a rhetorical question. Shouldn't I be concerned about the Ninevites? It obviously is answered yes, through God's actions in the book. God was indeed concerned about the Ninevite people, and the entire book of Jonah plays that out. In Nahum, the question, now directed at this generation of Ninevites who were being evil and wicked toward the Israelites, is pointing out that while they had previously repented, this generation of Ninevites had run from God, and they had reached a point where their transgressions were deserving of God's wrath. The question here is also rhetorical. All who hear the report of you clap their hands over you. Who hasn't felt your endless cruelty? As you read the book, you know that everyone that the Assyrians had touched had felt their wicked and sinful nature. So the answer is, nobody hadn't felt their cruelty. The entire book plays that out, and it answers an even weightier unasked question. If God had previously extended mercy to the Ninevites, why was he now acting to punish them? Because they were completely arrogant and corrupt, and they were cruel to everyone that they came in contact with. They had repented of their previous repentance. Yahweh is slow to anger, and great in power, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Yahweh has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum 1.3 In the same swim lane as the last verse questions found in Jonah and Nahum is the inescapable link between these two books as it pertains to the repentance, and then the lack of repentance, of the Ninevites. The book of Nahum highlights the complete U-turn of the Ninevites in just a few generations. In the book of Jonah, listen to the pleas of the Ninevites. Let neither man nor animal, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let them be covered with sackcloth, both man and animal. And let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows whether God will not turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. They were extended amazing grace from God. The Bible says that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster which he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. Look, let's be straight. The Ninevites were bad people who were running from God. God asked a prophet to go to them with a message. That prophet initially ran from God and the Ninevites. 
Then, after some divine intervention, that prophet took a message to Nineveh, and the people miraculously turned to the Lord. God pursues people. He desires them to place their faith in him, and he will work extraordinary events to make that possible. Theodore says, Out of his patience and loving kindness, the Lord delays punishment of sinners in an attempt to bring them to repentance. However, if they do not repent, the punishment is certain. I'm not sure if the Ninevites took for granted the mercy and forgiveness of God, or they failed to pass on the message of God to the next generation, or if their society was just completely corrupted back to their original ways by the sinful culture around them. I'm not sure what's the case. I'm not sure if anybody knows short of God, but we need to let this be a message that resonates with us. If you consider yourself a Christian, then we both need to be humbled by the grace and mercy and forgiveness that has been extended to us by God. We should never feel emboldened or guaranteed by what we never deserved in the first place. In the original Star Wars, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and the gang escape from the first Death Star, and they're being chased by Imperial fighters. Luke destroys one of the attackers, averting potential disaster by that fighter, but... Han cautions them, don't get cocky, kid, pointing out that there were still other avenues that could lead to their destruction. They could not rest on that one accomplishment. We cannot flaunt our past forgiveness. It's not ours to flaunt. I mean, Jesus has done the work for us. The Ninevites, at the very least, forget the past mercies of God, and at the very most, they're flaunting and lording it over the Israelites, and it has disastrous consequences. But remember that we also read the Israelites are falling into the feeling privileged and untouchable camp also. And it won't even be the first time that the Israelites forget about God. About five minutes after God parts the Red Sea, the Israelites are already turning to worship other gods in the wilderness. So there are biblical examples of Jews and Gentiles falling victim to this very real, very human trap. I know my math is rusty, but Jews plus Gentiles and carry the one, and that's 100% of all humans. We must realize that we are all susceptible to pride and to arrogance. We must always fight against memory loss of who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus on the cross. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan languishes and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languishes. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken apart by him. Nahum 1 verses 4 through 6. So this passage in Nahum is a huge passage for understanding who Yahweh God the Lord is. He rebukes the sea. The mountains quake before him. The earth trembles at his presence. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken apart by him. Only God has the power to do these things. These are divine attributes. In the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah assigned these same divine attributes to the Lord. I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. Jonah verse 9. 
then we see those attributes in action in verses like, But Yahweh sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty storm on the sea, so that the ship was likely to break up. And then Yahweh commanded that the sea cease its raging. Then Yahweh appointed a large fish to swallow Jonah. Then in Jonah chapter 4, Yahweh prepared a vine for Jonah. He destroyed the vine, and then he prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head. God is not just a God who can control these things, but a God who does control these things. So that's the pointing backwards part of the verse. But there is also a pointing forward to pull from as well. At the end of Mark chapter 4, we see the disciples on the sea in a major storm. Then, starting in verse 39, it says, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and then there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They were greatly afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the New Testament, Jesus steps in as one who can and does control these things. Jesus the Christ is fully God and he displays attributes that are only assigned to God. Don't miss what the minor prophets tell us about the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. Woe to the bloody city. The start of Nineveh chapter 3 verse 1. Now listen to the words of John Chrysostom, bishop of Constantinople in the 4th century AD. Let us mourn with Nahum, and let us say with him, Woe to him that builds up this house by injustice. Or rather, let us mourn for them as Christ did in his day, when he said, Woe to you rich, for you are now having your reward and your comfort. Let us not, I beseech you, cease mourning in this way. And if it is not unbecoming, let us not weep loudly for him who is already dead, but let us weep for the robber, the grasping, miserly, greedy man. Look, Nahum should teach us to weep for sinners who are destined to receive a tragic fate. For us to pray that the awing depictions of destruction in Nahum chapter 3 would spur us to have a greater zeal to reach out to the lost. The consequences of refusing Christ's lordship are real. The consequences for prideful unrepentance is death. We should be brokenhearted for the lost, for those who are straying, for the unrepentant, as Christ was. The ESV translation of the book of Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then I'll close with the ESV translation of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation. 
I noted a few verses from the ESV translation in there too. Next week, we'll take a brief break from our Minor Prophet study to cover an episode on repentance and an episode on the importance of public readings of scripture. Until next time, I love you all.